Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Pentagon delays a ballistic missile test over China's recent military aggressions. Some are calling this an act of appeasement. Monkeypox is declared a public health emergency. The Biden administration takes its response to the next level. Governor Ron DeSantis suspends a Democratic prosecutor from office. What he did and what the governor says about him. Four Louisville police officers federally charged in connection to Breonna Taylor's shooting death. What the Department of Justice is saying. A physician's policy mandates mask wearing. A patient says she can't wear a mask. What happens to her next? A migrant superhighway is bringing the world to Texas through South America. That's according to a new report, which says the Biden administration's diplomacy is increasing access to the U.S. And the Brittany Griner verdict is in after the WNBA star apologized in closing arguments. The Biden administration is delaying a long-planned intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, test because of rising tensions with China over Taiwan. This comes after the Chinese regime fired 11 ballistic missiles into the waters around Taiwan earlier today. We do not believe it is in our interest, Taiwan's interest, the region's interest, to allow tensions to escalate further. Which is why a long-planned Minuteman 3 ICBM test scheduled for this week has been rescheduled for the near future. As China engages in destabilizing military exercises around Taiwan, the United States is demonstrating instead the behavior of a responsible nuclear power by reducing the risks of miscalculation and misperception. This is the second time this year that the U.S. has delayed an ICBM test. The first was in March, amid Russia's war in Ukraine. Republican Congressman Mike Rogers, ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, criticized the delay. He said, these weak-kneed, pearl-clutching attempts at appeasement hurt our readiness and will only invite further aggression by our adversaries. The Chinese Communist regime launched its missiles following House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Several of the missiles landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone. The White House condemned the missile launches and said the U.S. Navy will send an aircraft carrier strike group to the region and that it will transit the Taiwan Strait. And in health news, earlier today, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra declared a public health emergency for monkeypox. Becerra was joined by CDC Director Rochelle Walensky and FDA Commissioner Robert Califf on a conference call with reporters. According to CDC data, more than 6,600 monkeypox infections have been reported across the country. Becerra said the emergency declaration comes after an increase of about 1,500 new cases in recent weeks. According to Walensky, the public health declaration will provide more access to resources and will enable personnel to be deployed to the outbreak in some localities. She said homosexual and bisexual men who are HIV positive appear to have the highest chance of getting infected. CDC data shows no deaths have been reported so far. And over in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis is suspending a prosecutor reportedly funded by George Soros. DeSantis says the prosecutor pledged not to enforce laws restricting abortions and cross-sex surgeries for minors. Here are the details. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Thursday suspended State Attorney Andrew Warren of the 13th Judicial Circuit due to alleged neglect of duty. Warren is a Democrat first elected to the position in Hillsborough County in 2016. He is in his second term. DeSantis says there are laws Warren refused to enforce. In June of 2021, he signed a letter saying that he would not enforce any prohibitions on sex change operations for minors. He's also instituted policies of, quote, presumptive non-enforcement. And then most recently, after the Dobbs decision was rendered by the U.S. Supreme Court, he signed a letter saying he would not enforce any laws relating to protecting the right to life in the state of Florida. And According to the New York Times in 2017, Warren received campaign funding from billionaire George Soros. 
In a statement, DeSantis said that state attorneys have a duty to prosecute crimes as defined in Florida law and cannot pick and choose which laws to enforce based on a personal agenda. When you flagrantly violate your oath of office, when you make yourself above the law, uh, you have violated your duty, uh, you have neglected your duty, and you are displaying a lack of competence uh, to be able to perform those duties. And so today, we are suspending State Attorney Andrew Warren effective immediately. Florida law allows for a governor to suspend state officials for certain reasons, including neglect of duty and incompetence. In the meantime, DeSantis appointed Warren's replacement. She's here with us, and it's Judge Susan Lopez, who currently serves as a county judge here in Hillsborough County and has extensive experience as a prosecutor. It is my promise to the people of Hillsborough County that I will faithfully execute the duties of this office and to ensure that we are fulfilling its purpose to prosecute crimes and protect the people of Hillsborough County. Warren reacted to his suspension with a statement saying in part, today's political stunt is an illegal overreach that continues a dangerous pattern by Ron DeSantis of using his office to further his own political ambition. It spits in the face of the voters of Hillsborough County who have twice elected me to serve them, not Ron DeSantis. Other Democrats also criticized DeSantis for his decision. Florida Senate Minority Leader Lauren Book called DeSantis authoritarian, saying, quote, DeSantis continues to put his political career ahead of the beliefs of Floridians. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A Texas jury has ordered Alex Jones to pay more than $4 million in damages to the parents of a Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting victim. The InfoWars host claimed the shooting was staged in an effort to increase gun control. The Austin, Texas jury must also decide how much he must pay in punitive damages to the two parents. And in election news, with less than a week to go before Florida's primary election cycle, one county was discovered to have made seemingly illegal changes to its voting procedures. And now the state's government has addressed the issue. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. With Florida primaries about to take place, documents obtained exclusively by the Epic Times show an election supervisor attempted to make changes to election procedures. The supervisor of elections for Florida's Charlotte County, Paul Stamulus, previously attempted to require poll workers to be inoculated for the COVID-19 virus, but was unsuccessful. Now recently, he updated polling room procedures that required poll deputies to use a thermometer to take the temperature of every voter who wanted to vote early in Charlotte County. And if anyone's temperature was 100 degrees or more, alternate voting procedures were to be implemented, which would require the voter to fill out the ballot outside, and the clerk would then cast that voter's ballot in the tabulator. Eric Cardall, who is special counsel of the Thomas More Society, a not-for-profit national public interest law firm, says this is nothing new. The pattern that we've seen uh, nationwide uh, since the November 2020 election is that the COVID pandemic is used as a pretext to affect or change election rules to affect election outcomes. After the Florida Department of State was made aware of the document, they spoke to Stamulus and then told the Epic Times he is revising his policy so that all voters in Charlotte County will have equal access to ballots and there are no restrictions on voting. Cardall mentioned that voters should keep up with election integrity investigations. You don't need to be there to know that the, the absentee ballot drop boxes in Milwaukee were illegal and paid by Zuckerberg's nonprofit because the Wisconsin Supreme Court said it on July 8th. So I NTD reached out to Stamulus's office and he said, the polling procedures manual has been revised. All clerks and poll workers have been notified via email of the prohibition against temperature screening and the alternate voting procedure. Jason Perry, NTD News. Four current and former Louisville police officers involved in the 2020 raid on Breonna Taylor's home have been federally charged in connection to her shooting death. These are the first federal charges brought against any of the officers involved. Brett Hankison, Joshua Janes, Kelly Goodlett, and Kyle Meany were arrested today. Attorney General Merrick Garland made the announcement this morning. Those alleged crimes include civil rights offenses, unlawful conspiracies, unconstitutional use of force, 
and obstruction offenses. The four defendants were charged through two separate indictments and one information. Brett Hankison was previously the only officer charged at the state level after Taylor's death. He was charged with three counts of wanton endangerment but was acquitted in March. 26-year-old Taylor was shot dead in her home during a nighttime raid on March 18, 2020. Plainclothes officers were serving a warrant to search her apartment as part of an investigation into a drug operation. The officers were fired upon by Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker. They fired back and some of the bullets struck Taylor. Her death sparked months of protests. And in Pennsylvania, a woman who arrived for her scheduled doctor's appointment told the receptionist she couldn't wear a mask. She says she ended up in handcuffs. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. This is Rainey Barton. On July 22nd, she had an appointment with hypertension and kidney specialists, an independent practice located in a Penn Medicine facility. She says it was her first visit in a long time. I had a scheduled appointment. I had a scheduled appointment with Dr. Weiner at the hypertension and kidney office in Lancaster. And I got into their suite on the third floor and was asked to put a mask on and I politely declined. The Penn Medicine Visitor Policy says a medical grade mask must be worn by everyone who enters, regardless of vaccination status. Rainey says the receptionist told her that wearing a mask wasn't optional. And I said, you're correct, it's not an option. I'm unable to wear the mask. And then she called her office manager out. Rainey said it was a stroke of luck that she even got an appointment that day and that she hadn't seen a doctor nor had her prescriptions filled in nearly two years. She says she refused to leave. So the police came and I got handcuffed. And um, so they took me to the East Hempfield Township Police Station and booked me. According to Rainey, she was charged with defiant criminal trespass, which means she stayed in the office after she was told to leave. So why can't Rainey wear a mask? I was assaulted as a little girl, and since then I've been unable to put anything over my face. She said during the assault she almost suffocated. I told her that I am unable to wear the mask for this reason. It'd be much easier for me if I could. And I don't believe that taking my constitutional rights from me is the right way to handle this. In February, the CDC removed the indoor mask recommendations for regions where cases and hospitalizations are low. On July 13th, Lancaster Online reported a seven-day average of 105 COVID cases per day in Lancaster a number much lower than the record 1,195 cases per day set in January. Penn Medicine hasn't changed its policy. We reached out to Penn Medicine and hypertension and kidney specialists, but we didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Now to the southern border. While Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas insists that the border is secure, a new report out says U.S.-bound immigrants are finding routes to the border faster, easier, and less obstructed than ever before. Earlier today, I spoke with Todd Benzman, who authored the report. He's the senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, and he says following months of the Biden administration's domestic policies and diplomacy, the number of migrants coming into the U.S. illegally is expected to grow exponentially. Todd Benzman, welcome to our show. Good to be here. Now, you've just put out a new report on what you're calling the migrant superhighway at the Darien Gap between North and South America. What does this shortcut look like? Well, remember that the majority, almost the majority of everybody that's reaching the southern border right now is from 150 different countries other than Central America and Mexico. And the way they get here is through the Darien Gap Passage, which is a a 60-mile, 10-day journey through Colombia to Panama, uh, where then they get picked up and then moved along uh, to our border. Uh, that has been a notorious passage. A lot of people die. A lot of people are swept away by rivers, uh, killed by bandits, et cetera, et cetera. And so the 
Biden administration went to Panama and Colombia and in a series of diplomatic meetings that started right around the first of the year and culminated in May with a bilateral agreement with Panama. At the same time, a new shortcut was established that bypassed the Darien Gap for the first time in anybody's memory. That turns it from a 10-day trek to a two-day, maybe a three-day if you've got little kids, uh, journey from uh, Colombia that gets you into civilization in Panama. And this is very significant. It's a sea change in the international migration pattern because it's so fast and anybody can do it now. And so the theory is that this will entice and induce really huge numbers of people to make this journey from around the world and bring a higher order of national security threats and it's stranger danger. People from all over uh, the African continent, all over the Middle East, uh, South Asia, uh, really everywhere in the entire world are coming through that Darien Gap and now it's a two-day trip. You've pointed to what you call the Biden administration shuttle diplomacy. What kinds of policies or actions do you think have created this situation? Right, well, for most of history, nobody has paid any attention to the Darien Gap. Uh, I've been writing about it for years and years, but most everybody just has ignored my reporting about the Darien Gap. I went down there in April, but then so many were coming through that the New York Times went down the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and they all did big horror stories in late 2021 and early 2022. And so very shortly after that, you started to see this shuttle diplomacy happening between Panama and the Biden government. And the objective of these talks was always, they said, to create new pathways that were safe, humane, and, uh, and orderly. Uh, that it's, it's actually a mantra, a policy mantra. Uh, I heard the president himself just say it a couple of days ago. And if that's their policy goal, they achieved that in the Darien Gap because they did make it orderly. Uh, and we also know that they couldn't have done this shortcut. There are actually two shortcuts one on the Caribbean side, one on the Pacific side, uh, without the uh, explicit involvement and coordination with the government of Panama, which has patrol boats down there that previously had been blocking the movement up the coastline of smuggling boats coming out of Colombia. Uh, now those patrol boats are standing back uh, so that, they, that, that the smuggling boats can land on the shores higher up and actually take rivers inland uh, to make the trip shorter. And lastly, the Biden administration says that they're going to issue illegal immigrants with IDs now instead of paper documents. They say it's part of modernizing their systems and that it'll save money. What's your take? Well, there's two things that could happen with that. One is... You can use those IDs to fast pass your way to work authorization, to public welfare, to housing subsidies, to you know college tuition and admission, to really it regularizes people who are not going to be here legally for very long at all because most of them are not going to pass the asylum test. They are not legitimate asylum seekers and then they're gonna go underground. And they're gonna go underground with these IDs, uh, probably getting them renewed and renewed and renewed again. So that's a problem because when the word of that gets down to the village back in Africa or in Honduras, that, hey, not only are they letting you in, but they're giving you these cool ID cards that will get you benefits, uh, then that, induces more people to just keep coming. I, I don't see how the administration doesn't see this, <laughs> but somehow they don't, or maybe they do see it and they're down with it, they're good with it. Um, 
but there is a, a flip side to that I've thought of that uh, they also, card holders would be trackable because you could see uh, where they're being plugged in and where they're being used and they may even have chips in them or something because they're supposedly going to be you know, technologically advanced in some way. Uh, and so I can see a whole lot of other illegal immigrants not wanting to have these cards at all for fear that it could track them or something. We'll have to see what, what the tech is inside those cards. Very interesting insights. Thank you so much, Todd Benzman from the Center for Immigration Studies. Thanks for having me. With more and more illegal immigrants crossing the southern border and border towns growing frustrated over the influx, we ask the question, how does illegal immigration impact the U.S.? Our reporter spoke with a former Border Patrol agent to find out. Thanks for sticking around. In September 2021, the White House published a blog on the economic benefits of giving permanent legal status to illegal immigrants. It said that the migrants coming in help the economy by expanding the workforce. That in turn leads to greater economic output, according to the blog. But are there also downsides to a growing workforce? Kent Lundgren worked as a Border Patrol agent for decades and is now a member of the Center for Immigration Studies. He says immigration laws protect the economy while undocumented workers weaken it. According to Lundgren, immigration laws exist for four main reasons. American jobs and wages, public safety, public health, and national security. According to the former Border Patrol agent, labor, like any other commodity, becomes cheaper the more it becomes available. Since the mid-70s, wages in terms of purchasing power have not increased for construction workers. Essentially, construction workers can buy no more now than they could in the 70s. And that's because there is such an, an oversupply of labor. The second reason is public safety. Lundgren says such a huge number of migrants coming in causes a threat to public safety, not because all of them are criminals. As a whole, they are not. Uh, but there is a criminal element in any group of people. And there is no reason that we should have to put up with their presence here in the United States. The third one, public health, has been demonstrated recently with the COVID-19 pandemic. Lundgren says in such a case, it would only make sense to stop letting in illegal immigrants to make sure the virus doesn't spread any further in the U.S. And the last reason, national security, relates to terrorist attacks. Lundgren says 9-11 is a perfect example of that because the terrorists who committed the attacks came into the United States with student visas, even though they didn't study. He says that could have been avoided with proper screening. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. Now to inflation. Taming inflation, that's what a $700 billion bill claims to do, and with President Biden's backing. But Republicans are trying to get a different message across, that it'll raise taxes and hurt the economy. NTD's Iris Tao has more. Pass it. Pass it. Get it to my desk. Pass it for the American people. Urging lawmakers to pass what's called the Inflation Reduction Act, President Biden still in quarantine, touting it as the largest investment ever in clean energy, adding that it will lower costs. We're going to invest $369 billion to address the climate crisis and bring down family energy bills by an average of $500 a year. The package, introduced by Senate Democrats, would spend around $400 billion on fighting climate change and shifting to renewable energy. It also invests about $300 billion in deficit reduction. But while Democrats say... We're finally uh, going to do something on the inflation front in a big way. Republicans are slamming it as a reckless spending spree that will do just the opposite. And in fact, it is the Inflation Increase Act. The Democrats' plan is funded in part by a 15% minimum corporate tax. And Republicans say it would hurt factories and middle-class Americans. If you're doing green energy, you're protected. But if you're producing nails, if you're producing bolts, if you're producing baby formula, if you're producing car parts, if you're producing lumber, your taxes are all going to go up. But Biden, speaking virtually at a Thursday roundtable, says it's only asking big companies to pay their fair share. 
that no one earning less than $400,000 a year will pay a penny more in federal taxes, notwithstanding all these ads you see on television. And now Senate Democrats are scrambling to push the package through the chamber under budget reconciliation rules, which would allow them to pass it without any Republican vote. But that's only if all 50 members of the Democratic caucus come on board. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And now to eastern Kentucky, where volunteers have fanned out across the region to help residents displaced this week by severe flooding. The floods swept away homes and vehicles and killed at least 37 people. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Lisa Allen and her family drove around Perry County distributing food and water to flood victims. Allen's foster child, A.J. Burchett, described the aftermath of the flooding. As we're going through here, you'll see a bunch of devastations. There's houses that are torn up and that are not even on their foundations anymore. Despite the conditions, the arduous task of cleaning up and rebuilding was well underway on Wednesday. Burchett and Allen delivered food to the flood victims. So there's all this stuff in here. There you got granola bars, noodles, canned food. We got some pancake mix, some just food in general, because we're going out and delivering all this food for everybody that needs it. All these bags are full, fill up with the same stuff. They were also equipped with a variety of other provisions. We got plates, spoons, water, Gatorade, some chips and gummies and stuff. We got diapers in there and baby stuff for anybody who needs it. We're just going through these haulers and stuff. So. Waters had receded and remote areas became more accessible. Mountains of muddy debris, upended vehicles, and homes dislodged from their foundations were common sights. The flood water came so fast on us here on the farm, and we've got 400 acres here. We've been here since 1865, our family has, and we're, uh, we're going to rebuild. We're gonna, we got, we've got homes standing, and, and, and we're going to stay right here in our, our 400 acres. At Hazard High School, students handed out supplies for flood victims. We went out and saw all the flood victims and stuff, and it just broke my heart to see it. And if I can help in any way to somebody who has nothing, if I can give what little I have to somebody, then I want to help. So I just, I, it really helps me to help people. Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir said he expected the toll to increase in the coming days. Andrew Thomas. NTD News. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, dozens of suspected drug dealers may get harsher punishment in San Francisco. That's based on a change in policy from the new district attorney. And the Brittany Griner verdict is in as the WNBA star apologizes in closing arguments. NTD's Dave Martin has the details after the break. Welcome back. Over to the West Coast now. The new district attorney in San Francisco is making changes in response to the city's drug problem. She announced a new policy to hold drug dealers accountable and revoke misdemeanor pleas from offenders. A San Francisco native told NTD's David Lamb that she's hopeful of the new direction from the DA. On Wednesday, San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins announced a new policy that prevents drug dealers from being referred to the city's community justice court if they're arrested with over five grams of drugs. She also revoked over 30 misdemeanor drug pleas. One native and video journalist told NTD her thoughts. What's your reaction to the SFDA's new policy to hold drug dealers more accountable? Um, I am really ecstatic. I am hopeful. I, I can't say that things will certainly change overnight in one week or a month, but I, I'm looking forward to any impact, positive impact this has on the local community and throughout the entire city. The policy may also add charging enhancements for dealing drugs within 1,000 feet of a school. The DA's office stated that the previous administration policy allowed those with over 500 grams of fentanyl to be referred to the Community Justice Court, which is an alternative to putting people in jail. 
Xiao said the system was previously abused. Xiao recalls what she said is one of the oddest and blatant moments regarding drug distribution that she'd ever seen in San Francisco. In recent memory, I was, again, downtown running errands. Um, obviously, downtown is a very big shopping hub for tourists and locals. And there was this one man who literally was holding in his hand um, an entire stack of powder. Xiao said he was going around offering it for free in broad daylight. Cocaine. 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 How much are you selling it for? Oh, it's free. Free? Samples? Yeah. Oh. Jenkins said since 2020, nearly 1,500 people have died of drug overdose, partly due to dealers being allowed to operate without punishment. She revoked dozens of misdemeanor open plea offers put forward by the previous administration under Chesa Boudin, who has since been recalled from office this year. The revoked plea offers included a case where one defendant had six open incidents for dealing fentanyl in the city's Tenderloin area. He was offered a single misdemeanor to settle all six cases. What I'm hoping is that the revocation of those plea deals, which should have never been issued in the first place, will make it much harder for these victims to seek out the substance, you know, to, to slow down, if not eventually halt their, their journey towards death. For all the revoked pleas, the DA's office is seeking a felony charge that includes jail time. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And staying in California, the large auto insurance giant Geico has its branches in the state. It's the latest private insurance company to reduce business operations there. An expert on corporate site selection told NTD what business reasons may be behind their decision. The large car insurance company Geico announced the closure of all its 38 local offices in the Golden State. Locally owned branch offices were told of the company's decision in a two-minute Zoom call at the beginning of August. John Boyd, principal of the Boyd Company, told NTD that auto insurance is one of the least profitable sectors of the insurance industry. And California is a very litigious and expensive place to do business. So we view this really as a cost-cutting move. It's important to know that insurance companies do leave markets that are no longer profitable. Entity reached out to Geico for comments. So far, the company has only responded to the California capital city-based Sacramento Bee. A Geico spokesperson said California's Geico customers can still buy insurance policies online and will continue to write policies for the more than 2 million customers currently insured. Geico's website no longer lists California as an option to browse for local agents. In the near term, it'll make it more difficult for consumers that have limited internet access, as well as customers that prefer to do business one-on-one -on -one with a with a insurance agent. Uh, given the size of Geico, I doubt they're planning to pull out of the California market in the in the in the near term. However, I would not rule that out as a possibility in the long term. Boyd says disasters can make California a risky market for insurance companies to do business. It has both man-made and natural disasters. Natural disasters like wildfires and earthquakes and flash flooding, as well as man-made man uh, challenges like rampant crime and lawlessness and undocumented drivers. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway is the owner of GEICO which reported a 53% drop in earnings for the first quarter of 2022. David Lamb, Entity News, California. California gas and oil workers are warning consumers across the United States about what they're calling harmful and reckless climate change in energy policies. Entity's Daniel Hall hears from a gasoline association expert on what this means for consumers. The Western States Petroleum Association, or WSPA, is bringing California Governor Gavin Newsom's energy policies to consumers' attention. He intends to ban the sale of all new gas-driven vehicles in the state by 2035. The organization is running ads in Florida and Texas comparing state energy policies to those in California. We pay $1.65 more for a gallon of gas than you do. Our electricity rates are twice as high as yours. 
Gavin Newsom is banning gas cars and shutting down California oil production. Kevin Seigel, vice president of strategic communications for the WSPA, warned that these policies will have not just a negative effect on gas vehicle drivers, but also all Californians. That phase out is going to mean higher costs for those who rely on internal combustion engine cars. It's, there are going to be fewer gas stations and it's going to be tougher to find fuels for those cars going on, moving forward. And more than anything, it's just going to be more higher costs um, as our, as our uh, economy is not ready for the, the, these cars. Newsom signed an executive order to ban gas vehicles in September 2020. This was during the state's COVID lockdown state of emergency, which continues until today, allowing him to bypass both legislative and voter approval. In tandem with Newsom's plans, the California Air Resource Board published a proposal in April that would increase electric vehicle sales by 35% in the state by 2026. Slagle says the governor is pushing people to use electric vehicles before the technology is mature and infrastructure is developed. We shouldn't be forced into that decision right now. Infrastructure is not ready yet. And, and that's one of the points we've been trying to make to the governor is, is, look, we can reach our climate goals without having to jump all in on, on a ban or a mandate to get us there. Slagle added that he is supportive of the electric vehicle industry and would rather that the different organizations can find a way to work together to provide energy needs. And we're saying slow down. Uh, let's find other ways you know, that, that, that involve all forms of energy, including fossil fuels, to get us to these climate goals. The WSPA is hoping their campaign efforts will bring awareness to other states about such policy implementation. Newsom's office deferred comment to the California Energy Commission, who said, quote, state agencies are monitoring additional electricity demand that will be required and planning now for load growth expected over the next 10 to 15 years. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. Moving on to the Northeast, deadly accidents and other major problems in Boston's subway system. Now, a subway line will be shut down for a whole month. Officials say repairs have to be made now. Here's that story. The Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, or MBTA, announced that the Orange Line is going to shut down completely from late August until late September. According to Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, this will speed up repairs tremendously. The 30 days of 24-hour access to rebuild and replace tracks across this line will replace what would have taken five full years of weekend and evening diversions. Officials say this closure comes after the Federal Transit Administration reviewed the Boston system and directed the MBTA to speed up repairs. Although the month-long closure might accelerate construction, one Boston resident called in at the MBTA board meeting telling them the closure's effect will be felt by thousands. Make 100,000 people a day who take that line take other options. Um, people are going to lose their jobs. Businesses are not going to have um, a full staff to run their businesses. People aren't going to be able to get to medical appointments. People aren't going to be able to get to see friends and family. Uh, this is just totally unacceptable. A Massachusetts state representative agrees, calling the closure disgusting. It's not the first time the Orange Line is experiencing major problems. The Orange Line's new fleet is made by a Chinese state-owned company, CRRC. The Chinese company is under a nearly $1 billion contract to deliver over 400 cars to the MBTA over the next few years, replacing older cars. Since they were first installed in 2019, these cars have failed multiple times. Last year, a train with over 100 passengers derailed. Boston's red line is also being replaced with Chinese cars. Just this year, a red line passenger died after his arm got caught in a closing car door. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. WNBA star Brittany Griner was sentenced today to nine years in a Russian prison for drug possession charges. The case stems from her February arrest at a Moscow airport where authorities found cannabis oil in her luggage. Griner pled guilty to the charges, saying she accidentally packed it in her haste to catch a flight. Her defense team submitted a letter from a U.S. doctor who recommended she use it for medicinal purposes. Earlier in the day, the two sides made their closing arguments. Griner, for her part, apologized, saying she had no intention to break the law, while prosecutors on the other side argued for a nine-and-a-half-year sentence. The verdict leaves the U.S. State Department as her last hope. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said last week they've offered a deal to return Griner, as well as former Marine Paul Whelan, 
but Moscow has yet to accept. In football news, the NFL said they will appeal the six-game suspension given to Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson by an independent arbiter. The league sought a year-long suspension at the joint hearing back in June, while Watson's lawyers argued for no punishment. Watson has faced 24 civil lawsuits accusing him of sexual misconduct, 20 of which were settled back in June. Monday, he agreed to settle three of the four remaining suits, according to Houston attorney Tony Busby, who represents the women. Watson has denied all wrongdoing and said he cooperated with the NFL's investigation. Both the Players Association and the NFL had three days to appeal the decision. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell will determine who hears the appeal and has the option to judge it himself. ESPN is reporting that the Players Association was preparing to sue the league in federal court should they appeal. Elsewhere in the league, the Pittsburgh Steelers and wide receiver Deontay Johnson have agreed to a two-year extension worth more than $36 million, according to NFL Network insider Mike Garofalo. $27 of the $36 million is guaranteed, and Johnson will make $19 million in the upcoming season. Johnson was a third-round pick in 2019 who made the Pro Bowl this past season after recording 107 catches for more than 1,100 yards and eight touchdowns. The wide receiver market has exploded this offseason with new deals from new teams for stars Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, and A.J. Brown, among others. Adams is now in Las Vegas. Hill was traded to Miami and Brown landed in Philadelphia as Green Bay, Kansas City, and Tennessee, respectively, will try to replace their production with cheaper alternatives. The NFL season starts on Thursday, September 8th, when the Super Bowl champion Los Angeles Rams play the Buffalo Bills. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, a Chinese state-owned company is buying a forestry plantation in the Solomon Islands. And that's raising concerns given the strategic importance of the location. And as Paris will host the Olympic Games in two years, a new official report raises concerns over the security at the event. We'll hear from a French police officer after this short break. Welcome back. A Chinese company is eyeing a deep water port and airstrip in the Solomon Islands. That's amid mounting concerns in the West about a potential Chinese military base just a thousand miles from Australia. A Chinese state-owned company is buying a forestry plantation in the Solomon Islands. But when the Chinese delegation visited the island, they asked nothing about the forests. Instead, reports say they were extra curious about the length of the wharf, an area where ships dock to load and unload, and the depth of the water. Other than tens of thousands of acres of forest, the plantation also covers a deep water port and a World War II-era airstrip. The purchase plan has raised alarms in Australia and allied countries about the Chinese regime's real plan. Beijing has already signed a security agreement with the Solomon Islands, causing panic in the West. And given the island's strategically important location, many have suspected that what the regime really wants is a military base on the Pacific Island. In an interview, former U.S. National Security Council advisor Alex Gray explained why the Solomon Islands are so important. I think that if Solomon Islands uh, ends up with a dual-use facility or a permanent base or, or some in-between hybrid model that gives the Chinese uh, access, it's going to be the most devastating uh, impact on the security of the first island chain going into the second island chain since World War II. Uh, it will be the greatest threat to Australian national security since 1945. Um, I, I don't think you can exaggerate how much of a danger it will be to uh, the alliance structure that the United States has built. 
The first island chain consists of a group of islands including Taiwan, Japan's Okinawa and the Philippines. It was seen as the first line of defense to contain the spread of Soviet Union influence during the Cold War and now communist China. The second island chain contains U.S. naval base Guam. Gray mentioned that the Solomon Islands are only a few hours flight from Australia and the islands sit astride Australia's sea lines of communication. There's a reason why thousands of Americans died in World War II fighting to keep Henderson Field uh, on Guadalcanal operative because the control of that, that, uh, that island is absolutely critical for Australia's uh, outlet to the wider world. And you know, I, I think there is, a, there is a real, not just Australian national imperative, but an American national imperative from an alliance management standpoint in keeping the Solomons from, from going down this path. As reported by Australian media outlet ABC, the current owners of the forestry plantation are voicing concerns. Taiwanese and Australian shareholders wrote a letter to the Australian government in May, warning that the sale could pose risks or strategic threats to Australia. They say actions are needed to prevent China from taking control of the port and airstrip and establishing a base. Two years out from Paris hosting the Olympic Games, concerns over security cast a shadow over the preparations. According to a recent report, the French capital, which is expecting hundreds of thousands of visitors, lacks basic infrastructure, such as hospital beds, and is vulnerable to terrorist and cyber attacks. But the most important problem might be public safety. NTD's France correspondent David Vives reports. Security preparations to make the French capital ready to host the Olympic Games are not up to the requirements. That's according to a report from France's top audit institution, the Court of Accounts, which was leaked to a French newspaper. The report says it is imperative to ramp up security, highlighting risks of terrorist and cyber attacks. According to a police source quoted by news agency AFP, it is not certain that authorities will be able to secure the 7,000 police officers and 24,000 private security guards required for the opening ceremony. And one recent incident also tells a story. The chaotic scenes of thugs attacking Liverpool football fans after the Championship League final at the Stade de France point to a lack of security measures in the capital and its nearby suburbs. An independent Senate inquiry pinned the blame on the organizers. Laurent Lafont, a senator who co-shared the investigation, said that these dysfunctions were at every level, not only during the implementation but also during advanced preparations. Moreover, official figures show visitors to the capital become a target of opportunity. With the return of tourists to Paris, incidences of pickpocketing has increased by 24%. Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin said this week that almost 50% of crimes in the French capital are committed by illegal immigrants, who often are repeat offenders. Eric Romand is a police union spokesperson who works in Paris. Hundreds of times we prosecute the same people but never get anywhere. We have reprimands, which is what police officers prefer to use today. It means that instead of sentencing an offender, for example, a pickpocket who has been caught three times by the police, the third time the police say to him, it is wrong to steal, you can go home. That's it. That's how he is convicted. The justice system afterwards will say that there is a good rate of convictions because every time someone steals, he is punished. But telling someone it's wrong to steal is useless. As soon as he gets out, he continues to steal. He echoes the report by the Court of Accounts, saying there is a lack of data on the extent of crime in the capital. Roman also says that's how the justice system operates, often leads to releasing criminals into the community. The police are contaminated by the ideology that prison is the so-called school of crime, which means we must not send people to prison. Prison is bad. We must reintegrate people. In our police union, we believe that we should lock people up. 
put them in prison, at least for a while. Not long ago, there was a 73-year-old man who was killed by a hit-and-run driver. The offender had been convicted 15 times. He was driving without a license. He killed someone. Offenders must be put in prison. It is not possible to continue like this. The 2024 Olympic Committee said it would follow the Court of Accounts action plan. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And over in Australia, for many, life wouldn't be complete without a pet. But a shortage of vets in remote areas is making it difficult for people to access the care their animals need. Here's NTD's Andrew Thomas with that story. This dog is having a minor medical procedure. It's one of many that happen every day at this vet clinic in Port Lincoln on South Australia's Eyre Peninsula. But it isn't always easy. I don't think people understand, but we are on call 24-7. These daily pressures have been compounded by a national shortage of vets with an acute impact in regional Australia. It's pretty sad, really. Like, it's hard for those people, particularly if they've got an emergency. You know, a lot of things can't wait that long. So there's a lot of people with animals out there in remote and rural areas that just don't have, uh, you know, immediate access to veterinary care. The Air Peninsula has two clinics servicing an area covering about 65,000 square miles. Vets often travel long distances to treat pets. It puts us under a bit of strain here, um, but we just feel like it's a service we need to provide to sort of help those people out. Both clinics have had to stop some regional visits because of staff shortages, and fewer staff means it's harder to keep customers happy. We try and be as understanding as we can, but it does get tough when you feel like you're their punching bag uh, a lot of the time. The Australian Veterinary Association is working to increase the number of vets working in regional Australia, including covering education costs for veterinary students. As a profession, we're looking to things like fee forgiveness for educational debt. Um, we're also looking at how can we get uh, families to go out. For these vets on the Air Peninsula, it's the satisfied customers that keep them employed. Seeing your patient that came in critically ill, then leaving the clinic, um, walking out with a wagging tail is always the best part. <laughs> Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.